Hey everybody, welcome to uh, Sunday Reading Day. Wow, what a night we had in Northern California, didn't we? I didn't think I was going to be able to do this today. I thought I was going to end up doing this on my iPhone. Uh, we're broadcasting live on Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok right now. And uh, kind of get the TikTok folks into this Sunday reading thing, because you guys seem to like it over on YouTube and Facebook. And what we do is, I'm going to give a quick explanation. My name is Charlotte. I'm the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, uh, which means California being such a big state, we can get to you. The issue is that, of course, because it's such a large state, we've got people, you know, in, in different cities. So it might take us an hour, two hours to get to you, but we can get you to help you out if you think you might have something paranormally wrong. And you can get us at, um, you, can, you can find us on Facebook, TikTok. You can find us at um, Instagram. You can find us on Twitter, all right? And our Instagram is uh, ghostygal, and it's all lowercase. Of course, TikTok is California Haunts, and Facebook is, you know, California Haunts, as well as Twitter is Cal Haunts. So you can check us out there. I'm going to let you guys know. Thank you. I see your comments coming in. Thank you very much. I can't read the comments because it's so far away, and it is on my cell phone. So I'm just going to let you know. I might not say anything back to you guys, but um, I see you there. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So today, what we do pretty much on Sundays is I have permission, because I, I, this is an interview show primarily. We broadcast Sunday through um, su um, su Sunday through Friday. And uh, normally, I would be interviewing somebody, but sun Sundays are special days, because Sundays, we read from a paranormal-themed book. So you don't even have to be watching the screen. You can kind of set me aside and go do dishes or make dinner or whatever, you know, and you can listen to me read from this book. And I have permission from the, from the publishers and the authors to read these stories. So today is the last day for the Christmas series. If, if I was able to use another computer in here for the bigger screen for you guys on TikTok, you'd see my Christmas backdrop back there, which I'm going to take down this evening. Kind of sad, but it's a nice backdrop. So we've been reading from a Sylvia Schultz book on various holiday stories, not so much not so much glued at Christmas, but holiday and winter stories that have, that have grim meanings or they're ghost stories or things like that. And that's why I say I'll be reading from, you know, from the book itself. And so if you guys, you know, just want to hang out you know, instead of sitting here watching me read and you just want to hang out and have dinner or do whatever, uh, you can do that. Do dishes, clean house, you know, and listen to the book because uh, it's a very interesting book. And like I said, today is the last day to read this particular book. Starting next Sunday, I'm going to be reading from uh, Rebecca Pittman's book on the Salem Witch Trials. And we're going to be continuing that because we kind of stopped midway through that to go to the Christmas book. So anyway, um. According to this book, we've got about an hour, a little over an hour left. I usually read for about an hour. And uh, so we will, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish it off today. And, you know, because, you know, there's always back stuff in the book and acknowledgments and all that. So it might be even shorter than an hour. I don't know yet with this book. But, uh, yeah, so this is it. This is the last read of the, re read of the holiday season for this particular format, the Christmas paranormal book. So uh, here we go. And let me get my old tablet going here. It gives me a, give me a minute here. This tablet's as antiquated as I am. But again, my name is Charlotte, and this is the California Haunts Radio Show, paranormal investigation team based out of Sacramento, California. And over there, over on Facebook, you know, if you if you like what you, what you hear, please uh, follow and hit that like button. Same thing with YouTube. There's a little ghost down in the bottom left hand right. I mean, right, right hand corner of the screen. Hit that, and that will subscribe to subscribe. You've got over 480 videos over there of varying topics. And I think there's something that you like. For everybody over on TikTok, if you like what you hear, please hit that heart. I want to see your hearts, and uh, I really appreciate them. 
you know, because we're just getting started with this. Um, this will be every Sunday we're going to be do- I'm going to be do- doing this. I've been doing this for like what two years now, every Sunday anyway. But with you guys, this is the second Sunday we're d- that I'm doing this. So, okay. So let me get this going here. And I, like I said, I can see your messages coming in. And what is going on here? Okay. I don't know what that was, but whatever it was, thank you for it. <laughs> I don't know what that was. I've never seen a screen like that come up. Anyway, um, I, I I see your messages. Thank you for sending me messages. Please be sure to... Uh, God, you got me all going now. Please be sure to like this. Um, like I said, we're going to be doing this. And I'm looking to figure out if anybody can help me out a little bit. I want to go live with my shows as well. So I'm trying to find a way to be able to do that so that you can hear my guests when they're on. Because I have some really good guests on. In fact, if you're into psychic readings and things like that, medium Nancy Matz and I are going to do a show on uh, TikTok and uh, see how you guys like that. So I want to welcome you all. Welcome, everybody. And again, hit hit those hearts, hit those likes, and see if we can't get some, some likes out of this and stuff and uh, get the ball rolling on TikTok, as well as my other people. So as soon as this comes up, I'll give you the book name and away we go. But, uh, yeah, this is all new for me for TikTok and everything. So hopefully you guys like it. You know, I have a pretty good audience. Okay. So this is telling me nothing. So the book is The Spirit of Christmas, The, the Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Holidays. And this is where we left off. And I'm telling you, um, if, you're, if you're like below 18 years old and stuff, and these kind of stories bother you, you know, it may not be a good idea for you to be here, you know, if, if you're kind of sensitive to this kind of thing. Otherwise, let's have at it because there's ghost stories in here and, you know, there's tales of terror in here and uh, all kinds of stuff. So here we go. This one's called, this the first one to start with is called Open Flames. Whoops, it just turned on me. Uh Uh-oh, I lost it. Hang on, hang on. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Oops, I just lost it. I hate when that happens. Okay, here we go. Every family has their own way of celebrating the holidays. Some gather with friends for a big meal on Christmas Day. Some celebrations are a little smaller, more laid back. For the Roonies, a couple in their 70s living in Seneca, Illinois, Christmas Eve, 1885, was a time to sit back and relax with a drink or three. Patrick and Matilda Rooney, both 72 years old, owned a small but prosperous farm just north of Seneca, about 70 miles southwest of Chicago. Joining them for the festivities was John Larson, their hired hand. Neither Patrick nor Matilda were shy about lifting a glass. Patrick kept his little brown jug of whiskey topped off once a week. Handily, his son-in-law, Michael Murphy, who lived nearby, owned a saloon and was happy to keep his father-in-law in booze. That night, Larson came in from doing his chores. Patrick and Matilda were already enjoying a cup of Christmas cheer. Larson had two glasses of whiskey, then went off to his bedroom, which was on the second floor of the house, just above the kitchen. He had chores to do in the morning, but the Roonies decided to stay up for a while longer. Larson woke up in the middle of the night. His eyes itched. His throat was scratchy and raw, and he had a hard time catching his breath. He thought miserably that he must be coming down with a cold. Before he could get up to get a drink of water to soothe his parched throat, he drifted back to sleep. The next morning, Larson got up and went downstairs to start in on his chores. He went to Mr. Rooney's room to wake him. He found Patrick Rooney unresponsive in his bedroom. Larson, concerned that Rooney had passed out after a night of drinking, tried to wake Rooney to help him to his bed. But after shaking Rooney a few times, Larson realized the old man was dead. 
Larson hurried to Matilda Rooney's room, but his boss's wife was nowhere to be found. Larson began to work out what had happened. He figured that maybe the Rooney's had had a fight. Matilda had killed Patrick and run away. Larson walked to the Murphy home and told the family of his theory. Michael Murphy came back with Larson to the Rooney home to investigate farther. The two men searched the whole house, trying to find any clue as to where Matilda might have gone. As they passed Larson's bedroom, Larson glanced in through the open door and noticed something that had escaped his attention in the rogginess at first. His pillows were black. Larson picked one up and looked closely. The pillowcases were covered with greasy black soot. Larson hummed thoughtfully. This was probably why he had woken up coughing and short of breath in the middle of the night. The two men's search for Mrs. Rooney ended in the kitchen. The stove, the table, the chairs were all covered in the same black slick of soot. And in the center of the room, there was a hole in the floor, charred around the edges, several feet wide. Sickened, Larson and Murphy made their way to the edge of the hole and looked down. On the cellar floor beneath the kitchen, one floor below, lay all that was left of Matilda Rooney. Part of her spine, her skull, one hip bone, and a pile of white ashes. Her left foot was still in the kitchen, standing at the edge of the hole in the floor. Her leg had burned through at the ankle, and when her body had fallen through the floor, the charred bone had snapped. Her foot, with the shoe still on it, had toppled upright on the kitchen floor. It was the only part of Mrs. Rooney that wasn't incinerated. Besides being covered in soot, like the, like the glass chimney of a smoky oil lamp, the only damage to the kitchen was that the edge of the tablecloth had been scorched. Well, that and charred. I'm sorry, well, that and the charred gaping hole in the middle of the floor. The LaSalle County coroner, Dr. Floyd Clinton, had only one body to autopsy. He determined that Patrick Rooney had died of smoke inhalation. John Larson, since he slept with his bedroom door closed, had been lucky to escape the same fate. As for Matilda Rooney, the coroner just scraped the ash up from the cellar from the cellar floor, along with the bone fragments. He later reported that it would, have, it would have taken a fire burning at over 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit to incinerate Matilda's 160-pound body so completely. He was at a loss, however, to explain how such an intense fire could burn only her body and not the rest of the kitchen or the house. John Larson was briefly considered a suspect in the deaths of Patrick and Matilda Rooney, but a couple of months later, he was exonerated on the strength of his character. Matilda Rooney's death is one of the best-known cases of spontaneous human combustion, but it is by no means the only one. There have been over 200 reports of people mysteriously bursting into flames. One of the earliest, recorded in Paris in 1673, involved a woman who caught fire and exploded on the street. Witnesses said she had been drinking what seems to fit the pattern of alcohol involvement in, in such cases. Victims are also usually heavy set, and they're often female. Scared of that. Strangest of all, Nearly all the reported cases of HAC have occurred in the Northern Hemisphere, many of them during the winter months, even more scared of that. Sadly, the Rooney's reputation suffered after their grisly ends. The Ottawa Republican Times ran their story on December 31, 1885, with a judgmental headline, Tragic End of an Old Couple Whose Weakness Was the Cause of Their Sad Demise. Even some of their descendants believed that the deaths were the result of divine retribution for the Rooney's excessive drinking on Christmas Eve. Hello, TikTok guys. I see you there. Welcome. Welcome, everybody from TikTok. I really appreciate you being there. I'm glad you're all here. Uh, we're here reading from, doing our Sunday reading of a paranormal theme book uh, with permissions from the author and the publisher, of course. So please join in, grab some coffee, grab some popcorn, listen on in. Same thing with you Facebook and, 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 and 
and TikTok, I'm gonna say TikTok and YouTube people. I got too many things going on. The Battle of Edge Hill. The English Civil War was a vicious, vicious contest between the Roundheads, led by Oliver Cromwell and the Royalists, who backed King Charles I. The, the first and bloodiest battle of the war was fought on a field called Edge Hill on October 23, 1642. The battlefield of Edge Hill was just seven miles outside of the English town of Banbury. It was here that two armies, each 20,000 strong, fought bitterly for hours, leaving 4,000 soldiers dead on the field. Neither side actually won the battle, although both sides claimed victory. The result of the battle was simply that the Roundheads were not able to stop the Royalists on their march towards London. The battle was over, but 4,000 men still wanted to have their say. Two months after the event, on Saturday morning, Christmas Eve, 1642, their armies met again to continue the battle. But these were not the soldiers of Charles I and Cromwell. These were phantom armies, drums beating, muskets firing, horses neighing, and cannons roaring, all in the skies over the battlefield. Several shepherds and other country folk were the first to witness this ghostly reenactment. They stood rooted to the spot in terror for three hours while the phantom battle raged above them. When the armies vanished, the witnesses ra raced to the nearby town of Kyneton to find them. William Wood, the magistrate, and the minister, Samuel Marshall, just to be on the safe side. I didn't come out right, sorry. Wood and Marshall listened to the incredible story, but they wanted to see this phenomenon for themselves. That night, the night of Christmas, the two men went to the Edge Hill battlefield accompanied by original witnesses, plus most of the townspeople. Half an hour after they got there, the spectral battle started up again just as fiercely. The witnesses, all terrified at the tumult of the raging battle, scattered and rushed home and locked the doors behind them. The rest of the week was quiet, and the townspeople dared to think that the haunting was over. But the next Saturday night, the phantom armies fought for four hours. Sunday night brought them out again. The minister, Mr. Marshall, had to move out of town. The continuous battles were simply too much for him. Others left too, but Wood, the magistrate, and most of the other townspeople stayed. Sure enough, the next weekend, there was another double feature. News of the repeating apparitions reached the ears of King Charles I. He was immediately curious. After all, it was his army that was tearing it up in the skies over Edge Hill. He sent six trusted men to, to Kyneton to investigate the phenomena. The men listen to Wood and others tell of the amazing sights they've seen. And that Saturday and Sunday nights, and on those Saturday and Sunday nights, they saw the vicious battle for themselves. Staring up at the sky, the men even recognized personal friends of theirs who had fallen during the actual battle in October. The six investigators returned to the king and testified under oath as to what they had seen. Within days of their report, the king ordered a pamphlet written up containing all the eyewitnesses' testimony of the recurring Battle of Edgehill. The phantom armies that fought so bitterly for so many nights gradually disappeared but reports still came of noises of battle of the pounding of hooves of hard galloping horses of phantom riders heard thundering across the deserted battlefield of cannons still discharging their daily loads for centuries after the battle long after cromwell's victory long after charles i lost his head the ghosts of edge hill still could not find rest so everybody if you like what you hear on on facebook uh <laughs> on, on Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok, please hit that like button. I want to keep reading. Please hit that like button. Hit those like buttons, you guys. 50 Berkeley Square. Some houses just seem to execute an air of evil. They don't have to be crumbling stone castles with ghosts from centuries past. Some, like Borley Rectory in England, 
seem to be repositories of creeping horror with poltergeist activity off the charts for no known reason. Some, like the Lutz home in Amityville, were the scene of some ghastly crime in years past, the stain of which still clings to the walls and permeates the air. And some houses are just plain creepy for no reason. A shut-in died, shut died in the house decades ago, or a mass murderer was rumored to bury the bodies of his victims in the cellar floor. For whatever reason, real or imagined, people talk about certain houses in hushed tones, and kids cross the street to avoid walking past them on their way to school. 50 Berkeley Square is such a house. Built in the late 18th century, the home was in a fashionable district of London. But there was always something unfashionably off about the house. Prime Minister George Canning, who lived in the house until his death in 1827, complained of hearing strange noises in the house. The hauntings really began, as far as anyone can tell, in the 1830s. Apparently, a maid went mad with fright when something suddenly appeared in her bedroom. One account published in a magazine of the day said that she was found standing in the middle of her room, rigid as a corpse, with hideously glaring eyes, unable to speak. She was taken to St. George's Hospital in an insane asylum, where she died the very next day. After this disturbing incident, the family who lived in the house refused to go into the maid's room. They said that when they touched the walls, they were found saturated with electric horror. The house became plagued with poltergeist phenomena, all the all the standard issue creepiness of a haunted house, rattling chains, rapping noises, eerie blue lights that drifted from room to room, and, unearth and unearthly screams. Lord Lyttelton heard of the maid's haunted room and showed up at the house, asking to spend the night there. He armed himself with two blunderbusses loaded with buckshot and silver coins. Easier to come by than silver bullets. Lyttelton came down the next morning, his cocky attitude shaken right out of him. He claimed that something horrible had come into the room and launched itself at him. He was able to fire one of his guns at it, and it disappeared. Littleton couldn't describe what it was that he'd seen in that room. Another visitor, Sir Robert Warboys, was deeply skeptical of the whole idea of a haunting. He demanded to be allowed to spend the night in the haunted room. He, too, was armed with a pistol, and he took a bell with him just in case he needed to summon help quickly. Sometime after midnight, the family was jolted awake by the violent ringing of the bell. They raced up to the maid's room, listening all the while for a shot of a pistol. It never came. They burst into the room and found Sir Robert sprawled half on the bed. The pistol lay on the floor and fired. Sir Robert was dead, but he had not died. Peacefully, sorry. His wide open eyes stared unseeing at some unspoken horror, and his lips were drawn back over his teeth in a feral grin of fear. Sir Robert Warboys read the coroner's report, had been frightened to death. Oh, so I'm sorry. Sir, Sir Robert Warboys read the coroner's report, had been frightened to death. In the 1850s, reports of the haunting began to circulate more widely in the neighborhood. In 1859, a man named Myers brought the, bought the house at 50 Berkeley Square. The story goes that he had been jilted by his beautiful fiancée. He retreated to an attic room of the huge house and slowly went mad as the once gorgeous home fell into disrepair. He was rumored to walk the house at night, candle in hand, to light his dismal way, weeping and calling out his faithless fiancé's name. During the day, he shut himself up in his tiny attic room, only answering the door to his servant, who brought him food and drink. In the 1870s and 1880s, long after Myers was gone, the house sat empty. The stories of fatal hauntings and the brooding homeowner worked their dark magic on the imaginations of many in the neighborhood. 
The neighbors spoke of ghostly phenomena disturbing the peace of Berkeley Square. At number 50, windows were thrown open. Bells ring stridently at all hours of the day and night. Stones and books were tossed outside, and the furniture was thrown around the house. The owners tried to rent out the vacant property, but nobody in the area wanted anything to do with it. The house sat empty until Christmas Eve of 1887. Two sailors from the frigate HMS Penelope were on shore leave, carousing their way through London. Edward Blunden and Robert Martin had drunk all their money and were stumbling through the streets in search of a warm place to sleep. It was starting to snow when they reached 50 Berkeley Square. Seeing the for rent sign on, the, on it, the sailors decided no harm would come of their spending the night there. They staggered their way up to the second floor bedroom. Martin soon fell fast, soon fell fast asleep, but Blunden tossed and turned, too keyed up to sleep. Also, he kept hearing scratching, dragging footsteps in the hallway outside the room. At around two in the morning, Robert Martin cannoned out of the front door of the house. Gibbering and hysterical with fright, he stared wildly around the square. He caught sight of a policeman walking his beat and raced over to him. Martin stammered out a nearly incoherent story about how he and Blunden had broken into the empty house to spend the night. They'd been attacked by something horrible, but Martin couldn't describe what it was. He could only gibber about some dark and shapeless thing with a gaping mouth. He begged the policeman to come back to the house with him. He had escaped, but he was afraid for Blunden. The front door of number 50 was open. The policeman cautiously went into the house, with Martin following fearfully behind him. They searched the house, but found no monster. They found Blunden's shattered body impaled on the decorative iron railings of the basement steps. He had made it out of the house, right through the second floor window. Edward Blunden's neck had snapped in the fall. His face was frozen in a rictus of terror. The sight of that face followed the policeman into, in his dreams for the rest of his life. Hey guys, if, if you like the book, if you like what I'm doing, hit that like button. Show, show me some love, okay? Because I want to keep going with this. I love this stuff. And I want to bring it to you, True Paranormal Stories. Let's do this. If you like ghost stories, this is the place to be. All right. Knight Hall. Pacific University, a liberal arts school in Forest Grove, Oregon, is home to an elegant building called Knight Hall. The former private residence is painted a pleasant muted gray, and the white gingerbread trim gives nod to its Victorian era beginnings. In the late 1940s, the house served as a, women, a woman's dorm, as a woman's dormitory. In 59, the music department moved into Knight Hall. In the fall of 1974, a student night watchman had an unusual encounter in the building. As he went about his rounds checking the building, he could hear a singer, a woman, still practicing in the third floor library. The watchman went up to the third floor to tell the singer it was time for her to leave. As he went further up the stairs to the second floor, then to the third floor, he began to feel a stirring sense of unease, for no good reason. As soon as he reached the third floor landing, the singing stopped abruptly. The watchman opened the door to the library. No one was in the room. The student, suspect, the student suspecting he was being pranked, searched the room for a hidden tape. Tape recorder. He found nothing. So assuming it had to be a prank, someone must actually have been singing and had somehow slipped past him. He searched the entire house for the intruder. He searched the third floor. He searched the second floor. As he trotted down the staircase to the first floor, he saw his mysterious singer. A filmy, bluish-white mist in the vague shape of a woman was standing in front of a professor's office. As the stunned watchman stared, the figure drifted away and disappeared. The student watchman didn't quit his job after that encounter, but he did get a large German shepherd to keep him company on his nightly rounds. One night, 
As the watchman was about to go into night hall, the dog started growling. The hackles on his back rose, and it whined and jumped up at the window, teeth snapping on air. But when the watchman went up to the front door, the dog flatly refused to go into the building. Night Hall just didn't get checked that night. In 1979, two reporters from the student paper spent the night in the beautiful old building. They retreated to a smorgasbord of paranormal activity. They heard footsteps. They had the lights turned on, on them. They heard long rustling skirts brush past them, and they heard a woman's alto voice singing. Whoever the spirit was, she had a sense of humor. One of the reporters sat down on the piano and began to play, hoping to attract the spirit's attention. A female voice whispered in his ear, Oh, please stop. Not once, but twice. The reporters came back with some friends the next night. When one of the friends sat down to play the piano, everyone in the room heard a heavy, long-suffering sigh. The ghost of Night Hall was nicknamed Vera on the strength of an Ouija board session held in 1969. A spirit said her name was Vera Herrick during that session, daughter of John Herrick, and she had been a student at the university from 1883 to 1887. Interestingly, Reverend John Herrick was president of Pacific University at that time. But when the investigators checked school records, they discovered that Reverend Herrick did not have a daughter named Vera. The only Vera the researchers uncovered was Vera Carolyn Jackson, who was a music student at the university from 1902 to 1904. This presents a problem with the timeline of the haunting. Knight Hall didn't become the music building until 1959. There's also the fact that the first reports of a haunting in Knight Hall date back to 1949, when it was still a woman's dorm, 10 years before the music department moved in. Whether the spirit is Vera Herrick or Vera Jackson or someone else entirely, the fact remains that Knight Hall is most definitely haunted. In the early 1980s, Dr. Donald Schweja, a retired music professor, came to the building on Christmas Day. He wanted to record some music, and a home and a home filled with family celebrating the holiday was not a place to do it. While Dr. Schweja was in the middle of recording, he heard footsteps coming down the corridor. Annoyed, the professor walked quietly to the door. He was not about to have someone speak and inadvertently ruin the tape. This was precisely what he had hoped to avoid by recording in the empty music building. Dr. Swasia eased the door open to warn whoever it was to keep quiet, but no one was there. All right, if you guys like what you hear, keep hitting that like button. Please hit that like button. Let me know that you like me, okay? Because this, you know, we do this every Sunday. Lon Strickler, and I know this gentleman, he's been on my show a couple of times. So Lon, if you're listening, she's got you in here, okay? Lon Strickler, who runs the blog Phantoms and Monsters, who runs the blog Phantoms and Monsters at www.phantomsandmonsters.com, is no stranger to the supernatural. He has made it his mission to serve the world for account, to search the world for accounts of strange and unusual, and just plain weird. Lon goes looking for the paranormal on a daily basis, and sometimes the paranormal finds him. Lon posted a story on his blog about an experience he had in early January 2017. He was in the hospital waiting to have some tests run. Suddenly, as he lay in his bed, he was attacked by some sort of female spirit energy. The spirit wrapped her hands around Lon's throat and started to choke him. He was able to fight the spirit off, but the experience stayed with him. When his nurse returned to the room, she asked, startled, where did you get those marks on your throat? Intrigued by the experience, Lon put out a call to the readers of his blog asking people to write him if they'd had similar encounters. A reader, who asked to be identified only as J.C.G., wrote in to tell of something that had happened to a friend of hers. J.C.G.'s friend lived in Santiago de... This is not happening to me. Lived in Mexico. We'll leave it at that. She worked at a local hospital as a nurse. 
at around 4 a.m. on December 24th. She went to the break room to catch a quick nap. She had just laid down on one of the cots and closed her eyes when she felt someone slap her knees, thinking it was thinking it was one of her co-workers trying to get her attention. She sat up. As soon as she sat up, a spirit wearing a hospital gown attacked her. The spirit grabbed the nurse by the throat, trying to strangle her. She tried to fight it off, but the spirit grabbed her flailing arm. Desperately, the nurse tried to scream for help, but the ghostly pressure on her throat muted her cries. Finally, her co-worker heard the commotion and came in to find out what was going on. When the other nurse rushed into the room, the spirit fell out the window, or flew out the window, I'm sorry. <laughs> Neither of the two women ever saw its face. The second nurse never even saw the attacking spirit. But she did see the angry red bruises on her co-worker's neck. Wow. Next one is called A Game of Billiards. If you like what you hear, hit that like button. If you like ghost stories, you like the paranormal, hit that like button. Hit those hearts. Let me see your hearts. In the fall of 1943, World War II was raging across Europe. Lieutenant Colonel, o Lieutenant Colonel O'Donovan, an English artillery officer, was given command of two field batteries and told to prepare his men for an attack on the German army. The artillerymen were given quarters in various buildings on the state in Midlands. The officers stayed in the manor house. The estate was surrounded by acres of beautifully kept parkland, land that was soon chewed to bits of turf by the lobbing of artillery shells in practice. When Colonel O'Donovan arrived at the estate, the manor house was virtually deserted. The lord of the manor was off fighting the war, and his wife was living elsewhere. The only people left behind to care for the estate and its grand house were two old servants who had been employed with the family for many years. Like every good English manor house, the estate was home to a ghost. The butler told O'Donovan shortly after the officer's arrival that before the troops had, e had even been assigned to the estate, someone else had lived there for a brief time. On learning of the ghost, the men had moved out in a hurry. Colonel O'Donovan didn't chastise the butler for telling ghost stories, but he didn't believe him either. The colonel had more important things on his mind, like getting his men, to read for, getting his men ready for battle but he wanted the butler to think of him and his men as guests in the manor house, rather than intruders. He hired the butler to help him put together an officer's mess. The butler agreed that this would bring some convivality to the empty house. Hope I said that right. It was agreed. The officers were gathered for their main meal at 7.45 every evening. A couple of weeks later, Colonel O'Donovan was on his way down to the hall where the officers meet for supper. Glancing at a clock in the hallway, he realized it was only 6.45. He was an hour early. Making a mental note to check his watch for accuracy, he wondered how he was going to pass the time until supper. It was a chilly fall night, and there was a fireplace in the hall where the officers ate their evening meals. The thought of spending some time relaxing by a cheerful fire held a lot of appeal. But just as the colonel was about to head for the hall, he heard, the sound, he heard a sound that pleased him even more than the crackle of a cozy fire. It was the click of billiard balls, and it was coming from a nearby room, a room the colonel hadn't been in before. He opened the door and found a full-sized full billiards table in the center of the room. Racks of cue sticks lined the walls. A youngish man in army dress blues was shooting balls on the table, just messing around, not seriously playing a game. His outfit reminded of Donovan of the uniform worn by General Kirchner's soldiers in World War I. The colonel was briefly, was briefly surprised the boy had been found fit for service as his back was curved into a pronounced widow's hump. O'Donovan went over to the racks on the wall and selected a cue stick. Want a game, he asked. 
He was an avid player. It had been too long since he'd enjoyed a game of billiards. The young man nodded with a really with a ready smile. O'Donovan racked up the balls, and the game began. The young man was a good player, as good as O'Donovan himself was, and soon the score stood 98 to 98. The colonel could hear the clump of the army boots in the hallway, and he knew the other officers were coming in for the evening meal. The colonel took his final shot and scored two more points easily. He won the game. That's done it, he said, my game. The young man smiled again, accepting O'Donovan's narrow victory. He put his cue stick back on the rack and walked out of the room during a, through another door. O'Donovan shook his head, a bit bemused. He thoroughly enjoyed the game, but he found it odd that the young man had never uttered a single word. He joined his fellow officers in the dining room, but his mind kept straying back to the billiards table and the strange young man. Halfway through the meal, O'Donovan decided to ask his men if they'd seen the kid in the dress blues. No one had. A nice enough lad with a hump, O'Donovan continued. I've just beaten him at billiards. Just then, O'Donovan noticed the stricken look on the butler's face. The man was standing frozen and pale in the act of serving dessert. You've seen Master Willie, sir. The colonel pressed the butler to explain. Master Willie was her ladyship's brother. He managed to join up with Kirchner's army back in 1915, but when the officers discovered he was deformed, they discharged him. He came home to the manor at Christmas, 1916. He played a good game of billiards. Then he shot himself in the room where he loved to play. Wow. Okay, if you like this stuff, please be sure to hit that, hit those hearts, hit those like buttons. And uh, share this with somebody else. You know, if you know anybody else that likes this kind of thing, share it. Please be sure to share it. And hit those likes. The Mutiny on the Junior. Many people live on Martha's Vineyard because of its beauty and history. Many more people visit the vineyard as tourists. And some of the year-round residents are, well, more permanent than most. They've been there all their lives and beyond. The Victorian Inn on Southwater Street, excuse me for a second, caters to the vacationers that visit Martha's Vineyard. This description of the stately inn comes from Holly Nader's wonderful book, Haunted Island. Tall windows and white Corinthian columns face the narrow lane with a grace and purity typical of the grander homes erected in the second half of the 19th century. The mansard roof, added in the 1980s, altered a steeply pitched attic space into a highly serviceable third floor. Inside the inn, the window lace is homey, and the antique furniture is handsome yet reassuringly lived in. A four-poster bed, cozy comforter, and a teddy bear adorn each bedroom. You feel you've entered an actual Victorian abode, rather than the too glossy reproduction from a decorator source book. Sounds like an appealing place indeed. And it is a ghost hunter's paradise. The owner, Kathy Appert, heard a woman's infectious laughter from behind a closed door the morning after she bought the inn. Visitors of the inn have had their own encounters with the resident spirits. The previous owners had trouble with a poltergeist, who would chuck furniture out into the hall during the night. One night, the prankster managed to wedge a large wicker chair into a small closet of an unoccupied room. It took two employees yanking at it to work it loose the next morning and, it, and, and to take it out from the closet. In another room, the poltergeist would scatter an assortment of old-fashioned hairpins, always on the same section of the carpet. Other guests have spoken of waking late at night to see a man in a dark suit sitting in an armchair in their room, calmly smoking a pipe. This spirit ignores the living, but not all of them are so, are so obvious. Kathy's daughter was straightening one of the upstairs bedrooms when she heard a man's voice snarl, Get out! There was no one in the room with her at the time. 
a tourist from New York had a deeply unsettling experience when she spent the night in the Victorian Inn. The room in which she stayed had tall windows overlooking the harbor and a set of French doors opening onto a wide balcony. Sometimes, past midnight, the young woman came awake with a start. One of the balcony doors had blown open with a bang. A tall man with a glorious mane of silver-white hair sauntered into the room. He came over to the woman's bed as she lay there, rigid with fear. When he got to the bedside, the ghost reached out, playfully tweaked her nipple. Can we say that live online? Then he ambled back to the balcony and closed the door behind him. The woman lay in her bed, trying to process what had just happened. About a minute later, the balcony doors opened again. Standing outside were five men, oh my, who looked like they'd just come from the set of Pirates of the Caribbean. Whalers, with mutton-chop whiskers, unruly beards, and layers of tattered clothing that had seen the hard use as the men toiled on their vessel. The men started to move into the room, but they came in search of the white-haired gentleman, but they can't, okay, into the room. Had they come in search of the white-haired gentleman who really interrupted the woman's sleep? They had taken several steps into the room when the young woman found her voice. She sat up in bed and shrieked, go away. The five men didn't turn around and head for the balcony door. They simply vanished. Martha's Vineyard has always been home to men who made their living from the begrudging sea. Many lost their lives to this harsh mistress. One of the men who gloried in the demanding life of a whaling ship, Captain, was Lafayette Raleigh. Born into a family with seawater in his blood, his father was a master mariner. Raleigh signed up for his first whaling expedition when he was just 15 years old. Raleigh showed an aptitude for the technical side of life at sea, and due to his father's influence, he was trained in navigation at an age when other youngsters were serving simply as cabin boys. It was a stroke of luck, both that Raleigh had the innate talent to learn, and that there was a sailor on board with the foresight to teach him. On that first voyage, both the captain and the first mate died of scurvy. It fell to the teenage Raleigh to guide the ship and its crew safely back to port. For his cool head and natural talent, Raleigh was soon re- rewarded with the command of his own vessel. Raleigh would later serve as master, as master mariner on the Orozimbo, the Neptune, the Citizen, and, and the Junior. It was the Junior that was the setting of the tragic event that may have left its mark on Raleigh and, subsequently, on the home where he spent much of his life. In 1856, Captain Thomas Mellon, Thomas Mellon recruited a fresh crew in New Bedford to bolster the Junior's numbers for a planned whaling voyage to the South Seas. Mellon's veteran crew were suspicious of the newcomers right from the start. The new recruits were unfriendly and downright even surly. Even worse, they seemed to deliberately undermine the captain's authority and the ship's morale. When stationed in the crow's nest, for example, they would forget to announce a whale whale sighting, not an ideal habit for a crew of a whaling ship. On December 25, 1856, 156 days of the voyage, the junior was under sail several miles off the coast of New Zealand. The crew Mellon had picked up in New Bedford chose their moment to act. Brandishing pistols they'd hidden in their duffel bags, they burst into Captain Mellon's cabin and shot him dead. Then they murdered the first mate in his cabin. The ill-fated ship eventually found its way back to New England. It was cleaned up, and Lafayette Raleigh was chosen to be its new captain in 1857, the same year he built his future family's home, the home that would later become the Victorian Inn. Was there psychic residue hanging around the junior from the evil deeds of Christmas Day, 1856? Did it follow Raleigh to, the, to his new home? 
The five bedraggled spirits who sauntered in the young woman's bedroom may have been fugitive ghosts from the junior. Either its original crew searching for their unlucky captain and first mate, or the murdering mutineers on the prowl for the same men. Man Overboard. All right, you guys, if you like what you hear, please hit that like button. Show me some love for this. I love doing this stuff, and I love reading for you guys, and I'm reading from The Spirits of Christmas, The Dark Side of the Paranormal. Last reading for the season for this book. Anna Nicholson leaned against the rail on the deck of the Hoy Silver Spray. I think it's Hoy. Hoig. H-O-E-G-H. All right. The Norwegian sailor was homesick. Okay. It was Christmas Eve. 1955, but instead of being home with his family, he was spending the holiday working in the Gulf of Mexico, many hundreds of miles from home. But that, at times, was the life of a sailor. Arne signed, Arne, I'm sorry I said Anne, it's Arne. Arne signed and took one la- side and took one last look at the moon, which lit the waves with a soft silver glow. At least he could imagine that perhaps his family, gathered for their Christmas Eve celebration, might be gazing up at the same silver moon and thinking of him. His eyes still on the moon, Arnie reached for the deck rail, but he had misjudged the distance in the moonlight. Grabbing frantically at the air, Arnie felt himself falling. He hit the water with a splash and kicked to the surface in a panic. Help, help, he yelled, hoping that against all odds one of his shipmates would hear his voice above the noise of the ship's engines. But the ho- but, but, but the hoy silver spray seemed steamed away into the darkness without him. Arnie beat the water in front of him, just in front of him, frustrated in frustrated terror, sending splashes of drops into the night. Arnie looked around, treading water. He was sure there was no more terrifying place to be than in the middle of the dark sea in the middle of the night. Arnie knew he was miles from land. The Gulf of Mexico was about 600,000 square miles of dark water, a thousand, t- a thousand miles across at its broadest point. If he struck out swimming in the wrong direction, he was sure to die of exhaustion long before he reached any shore. Arnie stayed afloat for hours, buoyed by the salt water of the gulf, but his strength and his morale were both flagging. He'd seen several ships pass, but no matter how loud he'd yelled, he hadn't been able to attract anyone's attention. All Christmas Day he floated, buffeted by the gentle gulf waves. He was still terrified of swimming in the wrong direction, so he tried to stay put as the sun went down on another day but he had to do something soon. He couldn't just float forever, or he'd end up floating forever. He put that thought hurriedly out of his mind. The moon rose, as big as, a, as big as and as beautiful as it ever had been on Christmas Eve. Had it really only been the night before that he'd fallen overboard? His ship was miles away by now, and he had no idea where the nearest land was. It seemed impossible that he could die here, in the welcoming warm gulf waters on Christmas Day. Arnie shook his head, blinking salt water out of his eyes. There were two men, shipmates of his, and they were walking towards him across the water on a silvery path of moonlight. Arnie seemed to hear ghostly voices coming to him across the water. If you swim towards the moon, the voices said, you'll reach safety. Summoning the last of his strength, Arnie kicked out and started swimming in the direction of the moon. He swam as hard as he could, lifting his head every so often to keep the glowing moon in his sights. A few hours later, when Arnie looked around for the moon, he also saw the lights of a tanker ahead of him. In the gray light of the coming dawn, he could just make out the British flag that snapped in the gulf breeze. He yelled and waved, frantic to get the tanker's attention. Several minutes later, Arnie Nicholson was being pulled aboard the British surveyor, following the path of the moon. Follow, sorry, following the path of the moon, his ghostly guys had been right. Cool, 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 cool. All right, if you guys like this, please hit that like button. 
Hit those hearts. Show me some love. Facebook, too. No excuse for Facebook and YouTube, too. Show me how much you like it, okay? The Old Man in the Theater. On Christmas night in 1933, Mr. Lewis Ames, a fireman working at the night shift at the brand-new Streatham Astoria Theater in London, was patrolling the empty building. What follows is his account of what he saw that night. Quote, I was making my rounds through the darkened theater shortly after midnight, and as I entered the tea lounge, I saw a figure advancing towards me. Thinking it must be a burglar, I turned my flashlight full on him and saw the figure of an old man dressed in a long white gown with a hood over his head. Gliding across the floor, his arms held stiffly at his side. I caught a glimpse of a wizened, wrinkled face and short beard. Then he turned away from me and moved toward the stairs, leading down to the vestibule. As Ames followed the spirit, as Ames followed the spirit, floated down to the theater, fling, flinging the heavy theater doors open as it went. The ghost glided down the center aisle and across the orchestra pit. It came to a stop behind the footlights in front of the stage curtain. The ghost turned to face Ames, lifted his hand, and cried out in a weird, gravelly voice, I won't sell, I won't sell, I won't sell, then it vanished. Of course, no one believed Ames' fantastic story, but then evidence came to light that did much to explain the strange encounter. Four years before, in 1929, there wasn't a theater on the site. There was a house, a lovely, comfortable house occupied by Mr. James. Mr. James and his wife were under constant pressure from developers to sell their pleasant little house. Mr. James didn't want to leave his home, but the developers eventually wore him down. Mr. and Mrs. James sold their house, which was promptly demolished to make, demolished to make room for a planned theater. The couple moved to the house in Streatham, and soon after the move, Mr. James died. Louis Ames had never even heard of Mr. James, but James's widow confirmed Louis's description of her late husband. Yes, Mr. James had had a beard, and yes, he had been very attached to his beloved home and extremely reluctant to give it up in the name of the progress. No wonder he wandered the aisles of the theater that night, upset over the demolition of his tidy little home. The Abduction of Oliver Larch Christmas Eve of 1889 was a festive time for the Larch family of Indiana. Friends were gathered in the Larch home to help celebrate the holiday. The guests included a minister and his wife from nearby South Bend, and a circuit judge and attorney who had traveled all the way from Chicago. The Larches welcomed these out-of-town guests, the more the merrier. After Christmas dinner, the party moved into the parlor. Matthew Larch sat down on the pump organ. Soon, the cozy farmhouse was filled with the rich sound of voices raised in song. Even after such a glorious dinner, everyone still had room for a snack. Young Oliver, young Oliver Larch, 11 years old, popped corn in the fireplace, and the guests ate handfuls of the treat. Through the windows, the sight of the fluffy falling snow made a pleasant picture of the season. Around midnight, Matthew, on a trip to the kitchen for a drink, noticed that the water in the cistern was, was low. Oliver, always ready with a helping hand, cheerily, cheerily volunteered to bring in several buckets of fresh water. He clambered into a warm jacket and overshoes, grabbed a bucket, and headed outside of the pump. More moments after the door, mere moments after the door closed behind him, a scream tore through the night. The larches and their guests were stunned into silence for a moment. Then Matthew lunged for a lantern and everyone raced outside. Oliver's footprints led from the kitchen door to a spot about 75 feet from the house. There, they simply stopped. There were no other tracks in the freshly fallen snow, and there was no sign of Oliver. Help! They've got me! The boy's shriek echoed in the yard. Help! Help! Help me, please! 
The child's voice seemed to come from somewhere in the dark skies above. As everyone stared upward, Oliver's voice grew fainter and fainter, then all was silent. It was as if the boy had been snatched away into thin air. The women led Oliver's sobbing mother into the house, while the men made a frantic search of the farm. They found no trace of the boy, nothing to tell them where he'd gone. The police were called, and they too made a thorough investigation. Based on the evidence and reports from the baffled witnesses, Oliver Large must have been swept up into the sky, eerie, eerier still. There had been no lights but the lantern Matthew March carried, no sounds except for the boy's terrified screams echoing from the endless black of the night sky. Oliver Large was never seen again. If you like these kind of stories and you like ghost stories, show me how much you like them. Send me some hearts. Send me some hearts. I'd, I'd appreciate it. Send me some hearts. Everybody, like, like, like. Bartholomew Rudd's Christmas guest. It was snowing. It was snowing heavily that Christmas Eve in Fountain City, Wisconsin. The small town, still a bit rough around the edges in, in this year of 1866, lay nestled near the Michigan River. Good people lived here, and Christmas Eve services were held at midnight. The songs and quiet worship brought a sense of peaceful con contentment to the frontier town. Bartholomew Wood had attended that midnight Christmas Eve service. Now he was headed home. Having reached the age of 53 as a confirmed bachelor, he was resigned to not having a wife and children waiting for him at home. He would spend the holiday alone, or so he thought. As Rudd walked home through the falling snow, his soul swelled with the warmth of the season. He loved this town, and the walk home from the church was pleasant, even with the chill in the air. In the quiet peace of the house as he passed, he could imagine children tucked away snugly in their beds, dreaming of gifts St. Nicholas would bring in the night. The, the falling snow laid a blanket of silence over the dark streets. The only sound that came to Rudd's ears was the crunch of his own boots on the thick snow. Wait, that wasn't quite right. As Rudd walked along, it seemed to him that he could hear another set of footfalls, almost an echo of his own, but that was absurd. The streets were dark, deserted. No one else was abroad on this night. There it was again, footsteps just slightly out of time with his own steps. And was he absolutely certain he was alone on the street? He hated to admit it, but a prowler or a pickpocket would have no respect for the sanctity of Christmas Eve. Rudd picked up his pace. He couldn't see anyone hiding in the shadows, but that didn't mean he wasn't going, being followed. He reached the safety of his front steps, panting and slightly out of breath from his quick walk. He turned around, hoping he wasn't about to be mugged on the steps of his own house. The street behind him was empty. The only thing following him was the swirling snow, and the only tracks in the snow were those left by his own boots. Rudd stopped the snow from his boots before unlocking his door. Then he stopped, as something odd registered in his mind. The snow was still falling thickly, but the shoulders and sleeves of his greatcoat were dry. He wore no hat, and he could feel the fluffy flakes in his hair. But when he pulled off a glove and reached up, his hair felt dry too. It was as if he, he companionably shared a friend's umbrella on the walk. No snow had touched him. What a strange evening. Rudd shook his head. He'd heard of Christmas miracles. He just never thought such a thing would happen to him. He unlocked his door and went inside, pausing to hang up his greatcoat and pull off his boots. His toes were chilled, and he was looking forward to poking his hearth fire back to life. He took several steps into his study before he registered the figure sitting in the chair next to the fire. Rudd stopped, confused and a little alarmed. 
Before he could call for help, though, the figure leaned down and prodded the fire with the poker. The fire blazed up cheerfully, and Rudd recognized the stranger. Andrew? Andrew Putnam. The figure stood, a stranger no more. Bartholomew, so good to see you. The men shook hands. They'd been friends since childhood, growing up together in the Wisconsin River town. Adulthood had seen the men go their separate ways. Rudd had been content to stay in Fountain City. Andrew Putnam, meanwhile, had gone off to seek his fortune in the East. He'd ended up in Washington, D.C. He currently held a position in Andrew Johnson's administration. While well, I'll be Andrew Putnam, back in rustic Fountain City for a visit. It was so kind of you to stop by to see me, and on Christmas Eve, too. Rudd was pleased beyond measure for the chance to catch up with his old friend. Have you eaten? My housekeeper keeps a good pantry. Let's have a late supper. Thanks, that sounds wonderful, Putnam said. If you don't mind, I'll stay here by the fire while you play the host. I'm still quite chilled from my journey. Of course, of course. Make yourself comfortable, please. Rudd hurried to the kitchen and threw together two heaping platefuls of food. Cold roast beef, hard-boiled eggs, good cheese, and a bowlful of nuts. Crackling for cracking stout sourdough bread and a pot of his housekeeper's marvelous apple butter put up just that put up just that fall and fragrant with spices. He grabbed two bottles of ale as well and brought the whole heavy train in the study. If Putnam was reluctant to leave the cozy fire, and Rudd didn't fault him for that, why, they'd just eat in front of the hearth, no harm in that. Rudd sat down and poured each, each bottle of ale in the glass. Merry Christmas. To absent friends, absent no more. Putnam raised his glass with a grin. I'll drink to that. The men visited for a couple hours, fully reminiscing about their childhood in the town. Finally, though, Rudd yawned and realized the lateness of the hour. And here I call myself a good host, keeping you up until the wee hours, chatting. We'll have plenty to talk about in the morning. You'll stay the night, won't you? Plenty of room at this inn for you, my friend. Putnam nodded. Of course I'll stay, thank you. Rudd showed his friend to the door of the guest room and told him good night. Putnam nearly, fought, nearly nodded again. Rudd headed off to his own bed, but once he got there, he found it hard to drop off to sleep. He told himself it was just the excitement of Putnam's visit, plus the late supper. As he stared at the ceiling, waiting for sleep to come, he finally dropped off to sleep around dawn. The housekeeper's knock on the door woke him. Merry Christmas, Mr. Rudd, sir. Your breakfast will be ready shortly. Bartholomew shook himself awake. He'd had only a few hours of sleep. Then he remembered Andrew was here. Rudd dressed quickly and went to see his friend, to, to see if his friend was up and about yet. Surely, the smell of his housekeeper's good coffee would have drawn him out of bed. On his way to the guest room, Bartholomew passed by the open door of the study. His steps slowed, then stopped. He stared into the room, disbelieving the evidence right before his eyes. The small table stood next to the fireplace, where the fire had long since smoldered down to ashes. Two glasses and two plates sat on the table, but only one of the plates was empty. The other was still piled high with food, and one glass was still full, full of the brim with ale, now gone warm and flat. Bartholomew hurried to the kitchen to find the housekeeper. Had Andrew perhaps left early that morning? But the astonished housekeeper swore that no one had left the house, and she'd been there since shortly after dawn, as usual. Nor had she made up the guest room, as no one had slept there the night before. Rudd spent Christmas Day wandering the house in a fog. Something was wrong, terribly wrong. He knew, without a doubt, that he'd enjoyed a conversation of several hours with his friend but there was no sign that Andrew had ever been in the house. The two desperate facts nagged at him, an itch deep in his mind that could not be scratched. 
That night, Bartholomew fell asleep in the, ch in the chair in front of the study fireplace. The other chair sat empty, almost mocking him. A knock on the front door woke him the next morning. Rudd sat up, sat up, rubbing sleep from his eyes and stretching to relieve the kink in the back from spending the night in the chair. His housekeeper met him before he got halfway down the stairs. She handed him the telegram, which was postmarked Washington, D.C. Sir, the family of Ad Andrew H. Putnam wishes to inform you of his death on the first day of December, 1866. We know you join us in mourning his passing. Stunned, Bartholomew read the two stark sentences over and over. The puzzle was finally solved. The crunch of footsteps accompanying him in the snow, the uneaten meal, the full glass of ale, the empty bed. Bartholomew Rudd had spent Christmas Eve visiting with a dead man. Wow. So if you like ghost stories, you like the paranormal, hit that heart, hit that heart. Let me know that you like it all. Let me know that you like it. Sir Hugh's Goblet. Hatherton Hall stands in Staffordshire, England, home to the lords of Hatherton since the time of the Crusades. This story, though, is of a more recent vintage. The Lord Hatherton, who held that title toward the end of the 19th century, was famed for the quality of his cellars. One Christmas Eve, he hosted a party for some of his friends while their wives attended a party of their own. After dinner, Lord Hatherton and his friends went to the study for port and cigars. All the men were getting companions were getting sloshed when one of the guests picked something up from lord hatherton's desk he put it down again rather hastily it was a human skull lined with silver lord hatherton picked it up with a grin the skull he said had belonged in life to an ancestor of his sir hugh hatherton some time after the gentleman's death his tomb in a private chapel had been disturbed his skull had found its way to the hands of one of his descendants who thought it amusing to line it with silver and use it as a goblet. The skull goblet got mixed reactions from the guests. Some of them were chilled but strangely fascinated by the grisly relic. Others were completely appalled and wanted nothing to do with drinking from it. Just then, with a wicked knowing grin, the current Lord Hatherton called for some brandy. All the guests knew of the quality of the Lord Hatherton's liquor collection. It was the offer of fine brandy that broke the ice. His guests soon forgot their disgust and Sir Hugh's skull was filled to the brim and passed around the room. The guests even toasted Sir Hugh with his own skull, inviting him to come spend Christmas Eve with the partiers. Lord Hatherton, the tipsiest of them all, even swore that if Sir Hugh did show, he'd give, them back, he'd give him back his skull. At the stroke of midnight, someone set the skull back on the desk, and then every man in the room heard footsteps in the hall outside the study. These were not the footsteps of their wives light from an evening of dancing at the ball. These were the heavy footsteps of a man, a large man. A noise came from the desk, and everyone turned to look. The skull rolled slowly to the edge of the desk, then fell to the floor and rolled underneath it. This was creepy enough, but then the door of the study slammed open. A bone-chilling blast of air swept the room, and there, in the doorway, stood a headless knight in full armor. Every man in the room froze. The knight gave a sarcastic, exaggerated bow, turned and walked with dignity down the hallway. When the wives returned a little while later, their husbands were all stone-cold sober. Many of them insisted on leaving a light on when they retired for the night. The next morning, the skull had vanished from under the desk. The silver plate lining was found on the lawn outside the study. The skull itself was never seen again. Blood Brothers This tale comes from the brooding mountains 
and dark hollows of Appalachia. A young man from West Virginia was engaged to be married to a beautiful girl, but the dark clouds of World War I loomed on the horizon, far across the ocean from his mountain home. The young man was called up sooner than he had expected, and he was shipped off to Germany before he could marry his sweetheart. After he had gone, the man's older brother came a courting. He convinced the girl that the soldier had never really loved her. Why? If he had, he wouldn't have left her all alone, now would he? Soon, he talked the girl into marrying him instead. On Christmas Eve, the soldier returned home unexpectedly. He went straight to the house where his brother lived with his wife, the wife that should have been his. The soldier knocked on the door, and the brother let him in. The brother was on edge during their whole conversation, as his wife was just upstairs. In an irritated whisper, he told the soldier that, yes, he had married the girl, simply for her money and for her family's position in society. He warned his brother, his younger brother, in a low but urgent tone, that if he interfered with the marriage in any way, he would kill him dead. The soldier nodded in grudging understanding. The conversation had gone just about the way he'd expected it to. He left the house, hearing the door close firmly behind him. The younger brother returned to the house a little while later with a revolver. He shot his older brother, then stormed out of the house. The young wife heard the shot and hurried downstairs. She found her husband dying in a spreading pool of his own blood on the floor. With his final agonized breaths, he told her what had happened. She called the police who searched the property thoroughly. They could find no trace of the murderous young soldier. On Christmas Day, a telegram arrived. It was addressed to the older brother. His widow opened it and read it. The telegram said that the young brother had been killed in action on December 21st. Okay, cool. All right, if you guys like what, you, what you're hearing, we do this every Sunday. Uh, it's a different book every Sunday. All right, so, okay. I mean, it's a, it's, a different, <laughs> it's a different book every month. So, you know, we're ending this book today. But if you like what you hear, hit those, hit those hearts, guys. Hit the like buttons. Off we go. Christmas music. Peter Gerg... <laughs> I gotta read this. P Peter Garino and Paul Willer bought their house at 25 Warren Street in Nantucket in 1971. The couple had been living in Manhattan and considered themselves New Yorkers down to the bone. But they had vacationed on Nantucket in 1969, and the island seemed like a paradise to them after the bustle and stress of city living. It took two years, but they eventually found the property on Orange Street. The moment they set foot inside the house, they both knew they'd finally found their dream home. They immediately felt comfortable in the house. They never dreamed it would turn into out to be haunted. Peter tells the story, quote, We had a strange but very pleasant recurring experience on our, excuse me, our first four years in the house. At midnight, every Christmas Eve, we would hear organ music coming from the third floor. It lasted for about ten minutes. It wasn't any Christmas music that we recognized, but it was beautiful. When we went up there, we could hear it more clearly, but we couldn't pinpoint the spot that it was coming from. Needless to say, there was no organ there. When the couple had moved into the house, they discovered that the third floor was stuffed with boxes of sheet music. Peter did a little research and found out that the previous owner, Mr. Snelling, had served as the minister of St. Paul's Episcopal Church. Episcopal Church. My mouth doesn't want to move. Mr. Snelling had lived in the house at 25 Orange Street for many years and used the third floor as his study. He also had an organ moved up to the third floor. When Mr. Snelling died, his widow donated their home to the church. The church used the house for a while, then it sat silent and empty for years, before the couple from New York City bought it. As we see it, Mr. Snelling was making up for those years when the house had no music on Christmas Eve, says Peter. A Celestial Choir 
This tale comes from the website paranormalabout.com. Contributor Mel lived in Klamath Falls, Oregon. On Christmas Eve, 1978, Mel was awakened at around 3 a.m. by the sweetest of sounds of by the sweet sounds of a choir in full voice. Mel's home was miles from the nearest church. Mel couldn't make out any words or even follow the tune, but the sound was unmistakable. The joyful pain of raised voices in worship. I got a feeling of angelic escalation, reverence, and gladness at heart, Mel wrote. This was truly a heavenly choir, lifting their voices on high, singing Hosanna to the highest in an unknown tongue, without accompaniment and instruments. Mel did some investigating and realized that the music wasn't coming from the radio or the television. Mel wandered outside and strangely the music wasn't heard outdoors. But Mel couldn't deny the exuberance in the glorious music. The way the countless male, female, and children's voices entwine together, the tonals going from operatic highs to the deepest bass voices is perfect harmony. It must have lasted about 10 minutes, but it was touching for an eternity. Midnight Mass. If you like what you hear, please be sure to um, hit those like buttons. Hit those like buttons. In 1885, a man named Charles Corey shared the following story for a collection of ghostly tales. His grandfather, a man by the name of Chatton, was traveling on business one Christmas Eve. It had snowed heavily all day long, and all the familiar landmarks on his route were covered with white drifts. Fearing he would lose his way, Chatton decided to walk beside his horse rather than ride. He happened to pass the ruins of an ancient chapel on the way home. As he trudged past, he heard bells chiming midnight, then the tinkling of lighter bells as if parishioners were being called to Mass. Chatton was intrigued. Was it possible that the chapel of St. Christopher had been restored? He hadn't noticed this as he passed it that morning. He came close to the chapel as the bells continued to peal out. They're welcome to him. The chapel looked beautiful in the moonlight. Warm light spilled invitingly from the windows. Chatton tied his horse to the gate and went inside. Every pew in the chapel was filled with people, but the place was eerily silent, except for the merrily ringing bells. Maybe the devout congregation was lost in fervent prayer. As he couldn't find a seat, Chatton knelt on the flagstones near the entrance. The priest and his server were busy at the altar. Midnight Mass had begun. Chatton was thrilled to attend the Mass in such a beautifully restored little chapel. The priest turned toward the parishioners to give a blessing, and Chatton was struck by the intensity of the priest's gaze. Those bright eyes seemed to fix on him, to single him out from the rest of the congregation. The priest lifted the host and held it up, saying in a strangely hollow voice, is there anyone here who can receive? Silence reigned in the small chapel. Three times the priest repeated his call to communion. Chatton got to his feet, a little irritated that the rest of the people had ignored the priest's invitation. Chatton assured the priest that he had gone to confession just that morning, before setting off on his trip. He had intended to take communion the next day on Christmas Day. But if you wish it, Chatton said, I am ready to receive the body and blood of our Lord at once. The change in the priest's expression was instant dramatic. His pinched, sallow face lit up with happy relief. He came down the altar steps and met Chatton at the, at the communion rail. Chatton knelt in reverence and received the host. May my blessing rest upon you, Chatton, the priest said. Chatton glanced up, glanced up in surprise. How had the priest known his name? But he had no time to wonder. Once, on a snowing Christmas Eve, such as this, I refused to go the last rites to a dying person. That was 300 years ago. I cannot be delivered from purgatory until one of the living should consent to receive communion from my hand. Thanks to you, I shall now be released. 
The moment the priest finished speaking, the torches went out, plunging the chapel in the darkness. When Chatton could see once again, he realized he was standing alone in the ruins of the chapel. Snowflakes drifted down because the roof had vanished. Where the pews had been, and as to before, now frost-killed nettles sagged under the weight of newly fallen snow. Chatton slogged his way through the dead weeds to the chapel door. He untied his horse, and together they walked away from the chapel of St. Christopher. All right, guys, that's the end of the book. That's it. We just finished. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the afterword because the author, uh, Sylvia Schultz, is a good friend of mine. And uh, yeah, let's see what she has to say on the afterword. And then that's going to conclude today. Don't leave yet. I got some information for everybody. So just hang loose. Afterward, this book was a real treat for me to write. The last three books I've written were, hmm, let's see, Mental Illness, Demons, and More Mental Illness. It was time for something a little lighter. This book was a sheer pleasure to write, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you so very much to everyone who shared their stories with me for this book, either directly or indirectly. And thank you specifically to Troy Taylor and the rest of the Whitechapel Press team. Troy is always so supportive of the projects I pitched to him, and I appreciate that a whole lot. It's a real pleasure to work with someone who has had as much love for history and ghost stories as I do. Thanks, as always, to my wonderful husband, Rob. I know you're a huge skeptic, and that's okay. I love you anyway. And thank you for reading this collection of tales. I hope they made you shiver a bit, even if you read it in August rather than December. You are the reason I write these books. So thank you ever so much for letting me do what I do, thoroughly, what I so thoroughly enjoy. Merry Christmas every day of the year. Okay, well, that's it for this book, and that's it for California Haunts Christmas Holidays. I'll be taking down my backdrop. I like my backdrop. My backdrop's really nice and warm and homey, but... I feel, you know, it's kind of like, you know, bittersweet. Anyway, tomorrow afternoon, or tomorrow at, at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, we are going to have a, a psychic Robbie Thomas on with us. And Robis, Robbie has been around the, the paranormal circuit for a while, but he's also really famous for working with police departments on cases and missing persons and, and different things like that. So he's going to be with us tomorrow at 4.30, assuming the power still goes. And yeah, we're still having issues with the internet. I just blinked out. Back to where Mario goes, right? It's the internet's really bad around here because of, of the weather. But anyway, I want to thank everybody on Facebook, Twitter, excuse me, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, I didn't forget about you guys, and YouTube for coming tonight. All right, uh, but again, uh, for the people on TikTok that haven't heard this before, we do this every Sunday. Next Sunday, we'll be reading about the Salem Witch Trials. And, of course, all these books are with permission of the author and publisher so that we have full permission to read them online. But I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Um, if you like what you see, share it with five people. If you hated what you see or what you heard and saw tonight, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get the word out about the show. I'm trying to get the word out not so much about the Sundays, but, I mean, uh, we not only do this, but every day of the week leading up to Sunday except for Saturday, we do interview guests from the paranormal world, uh, from paranormal and, and, and other places, a real good talk show. And again, I'm trying to fix it so that I can do this on a regular basis along with TikTok like I do tonight. But uh, unfortunately, I don't have the setup to do a weekly with TikTok because you guys wouldn't be able to hear my guest responses and stuff. So I'm trying to get that going. So hopefully I can figure out how to logistically do that for you guys on TikTok. But uh, at least for now, uh, I'm going to be doing a couple lives with uh, Medium Nancy Mats on TikTok in the, in the coming weeks. And uh, we'll be doing these with TikTok, okay? Not to mention the other stuff I do in between. 
But I want to thank everybody. It's uh, Sunday night, and I want you to get back to whatever you were doing for the weekend. But I appreciate you all coming. And visit us at uh, for the TikTok people and for anybody else that hasn't been over there yet. Our YouTube uh, page has more than 480 videos sitting over there. Paranormal topics, differing topics. I'm a journalist, so I like to kind of change it up. So I think there's something you'll like. So you want to go to youtube.com forward slash ampersand with that at California Hans Radio, and that'll take you over to our YouTube site. So anyway, thank you very much. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, same thing with TikTok. If, if you were just kind of cruising through and you like what you heard, please do um, follow because we're going to be having more and more events going on. All right, guys. Thank you. Have a good evening, and I will see you tomorrow at, at least the other crowd, or, or even you guys if you come over to YouTube. I'll see you tomorrow at uh, 4.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening.